This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Of course, Dad taught me another special lesson. He showed me what it means to be a president who serves with integrity, leads with courage, and acts with love in his heart for the citizens of our country. And of course, that's President George W. Bush, who followed in the footsteps of his own father, the 41st president of the United States, George Herbert Walker Bush, speaking today at a state funeral that was held at the nation's capital. Our next guest reminds us, as we pause today in honor of the 41st president of the United States, our next guest reminds us that uh, 41 talked about a kinder, gentler nation and had to deal with uh, a lot on his plate at the time as well. Chris Liu is senior fellow at University of Virginia Miller Center. Former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama spent 20 years in the government, has a great perspective on our nation's capital. He joins us on the phone from our bureau in Seattle on this Wednesday. Chris, nice to talk with you uh, today. You know, it is interesting. Jason kicked off our broadcast and we said, you know, I think all of us really did take a beat to watch the proceedings. Um, An era has really passed. Anytime you see a president um, pass, you know, you do think about the environment that he was in, in the nation's capital, in the world at large. But take us back, remind us, you've spent a lot of time in government, understand Washington and the different personalities and how the president and his or her, not her yet, but his personality can really make an administration and really the culture of a nation. Well, President uh, George H.W. Bush was the last president to have uh, served in World War II, and that certainly gave him a unique perspective on the U.S., uh, in the world. He was an ambassador to the United Nations. He was um, a, an ambassador to China, y- y- a CIA director. So he understood the value of America's alliances like NATO. He understood the value of multilateral organizations. And, you know, candidly, um, he, you know, a, a lot of what he stood for were kind of values that we talked about, kinder and gentler, decency, civility. Um, look, I, uh, let's not over glamorize those those times. Certainly there was partisanship mm-hmm. along the way. People remember um, the, the campaign ads he ran in 1988 against Mike Dukakis. And so, you know, yes, obviously there's always been partisan politics, but there was a fundamental decency and civility that he embodied that we could frankly use a lot more in Washington right now. Well, and it is interesting just the, the optics, Chris, of the National Cathedral today, you know, rarely, if very rarely, do we see all the living uh, presidents there together, you know, most of them with their, all of them, I should say, with their spouses. And, you know, there is this moment where, you know, Republicans, Democrats, and, and most notably, you know, you think back to, and this was alluded to by President George W. Bush in, in his eulogy, this friendship that really grew between George Herbert Walker Bush and President Bill Clinton, who vanquished, you know, to, to, to use right. a maybe overly florid language, you know, in, in a pretty hard fought battle. And, and there's much has been made about that letter, that note uh, that President Bush left uh, for President Clinton when he said, I'm rooting hard for you. Um, talk to us about that, especially versus what, what we may be seeing now. 
Well, look, I, you know, as I said, there, there's certainly a lot of partisanship. There was <laughs> a bit of awkwardness uh, as, uh, as President Trump came in. He greeted the Obamas, but greeted no one else. But I'm glad he was there. I'm glad he was invited. And I think that was appropriate. You know, uh, President uh, Bush 41 um, saw the presidency as something that transcended uh, partisanship. And, you know, he did not, according to press accounts, did not want to send a message by excluding the current president, uh, as Senator McCain had done at his funeral. He right. wanted to send a message that um, we as a country are bigger than the presidency, we're bigger than one person. And so I'm glad that all of the presidents are there. Would love to see this moment kind of continue on and sort of change the trajectory of where we are in our politics right now. Uh, I'm not wildly confident that will happen. But, you know, for one day, um, and we don't have a lot of these state funerals in the United States, no. fortunately, uh, but it's for one moment, it's good to put all of this aside. Yeah, it was interesting. I always think about the pageantry we see when it's, you know, a royal family overseas, but this is kind of um, our form of pageantry, if you will, and giving an honor uh, to someone very important to really the culture and history of our country. What's also interesting, Chris, though, I think about the Bush family, seeing George W. up there, um, the, seeing Jeb Bush. I mean, this was a family that was, you know, very involved in politics. And, and I am curious about, you know, the world to come, whether or not we'll see these kind of dynasties, whether it was the Kennedy family and other families that really were kind of all in on the political world and community yeah, and giving back. Well, exactly. And let's let's not forget that Bush 41's father, Prescott Bush, was right. a senator from Connecticut. And so this this is now a political dynasty that not only goes three generations, but um, Jeb's son is also um, in office right now. So they've, they've now spanned four generations. And that's a good thing. You know, public service is is part of the ethos of the Bush family. Uh, and it's good for this to continue. Now, obviously, um, you know, again, in, in the partisan times we live in, it's seen as a dynasty. That was certainly an argument. Uh, used against Jeb Bush. It's certainly an argument used against Hillary Clinton as well. But I think we ought to do more to extol uh, public service and, instead of kind of always painting it as, you know, dynasties. Well, and I love that you, you know, point out, you know, he was a conservative, but he also signed the Americans with Disabilities Act. He believed in smaller government, but he raised taxes when he realized, you know, he needed to do that to achieve a budget compromise. I mean, that crossing back and forth between the aisles, uh, a really important lesson and reminder to all of us. Chris Liu, we always appreciate your time and your insight. Senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama, on the phone from our bureau, our Bloomberg News Bureau in Seattle. Well, the nation has paused today, but tomorrow it will be back to work. And one of the elements looming, and certainly was on the minds of investors yesterday in that big stock sell-off, Carol, was the trade war, and specifically as it relates to the tech world and the big tech names. Tom Giles, executive editor for Global Technology, joins us from our bureau in San Francisco. TG, always nice to talk with you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so what's going on here? What What's the tech angle? Uh, Silicon Valley seems to be pretty worried about this, and maybe rightly so. What are you hearing? With good reason. Uh, the most recent indicator that all may not be well when it comes to technology in the trade war was a few comments that Donald Trump made in an interview with the Wall Street Journal where for the first time he suggested that maybe there would be some kind of a tariff imposed on iPhones, uh, something to the tune of 10%. 
not a great time for Apple right. to be drawn into the smack dab into the middle. As we already know, that overall demand has slowed. They've stopped reporting unit sales, which was an indicator for everybody in the market that Apple foresees a general slowdown, and they want you to stop focusing on the number that they sell and instead focus on the average price and other things like services that are attached to it. So that was the most recent manifestation of it. But there have been a number of warning signs that have indicated that Silicon Valley is going to be dragged into the middle of this kicking and screaming. Well, it's interesting. They'll be dragged into it kicking and screaming and also with their wallets. And I think about, you know, the tech community, um, Tom, you know, spending more and more money on lobbying, right? For a while, they weren't, I feel like, part of that world. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, over the last few years, we've seen them really step up. So I am curious about the political climate, you know, with lawmakers, right, who are always thinking about their next election and making sure they have enough money uh, to do it. So tell me how that might play into this battle. Right. You have to have a seat at the table in D.C. And Silicon Valley, for a long time, historically has had a much more of a, look, you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. Let us go on about our business. Let us build really cool stuff. Let us build a better tomorrow and, you know, cutting edge technology. And by and large, and I'm generalizing here, by and large, Silicon Valley has been able to kind of muddle along, do its thing. And there was this general sense of like, you know what, leave them alone, right? They're, they're creating jobs. They're doing some interesting stuff. We're not sure we fully understand it. Oh, look, Facebook has built this social network. Isn't that nice? You can poke people. Over the last couple of years, there's been a real rethinking of the role of what these companies are doing. Are they anti-competitive? Are they invading our privacy? What the heck is Facebook doing with our data that we put on that system? And what is happening with, with fake news and misinformation being spread around that social network? And how did it affect the election? So this whole end, these companies have gotten really big, really powerful, and a lot of our 401ks are tied up in yeah. that. So there's been this confluence of events that's made people think, wow, tech has gotten really big, really powerful, and are they wielding that power in a responsible way? Well, and we have had this parade of sorts uh, of big tech executives come to Washington testifying, and I believe, and keep me honest here, TG, that uh, Sundar Pichai will be on the Hill next week, right? He was supposed to be here this this week. He'll be there next week, and he's going to be facing questions about You know, there's a whole list of things that people want to know. Because remember, executives from Facebook and Twitter were hauled before Congress earlier in the year, and there was this big sign, and you know, showing that Google did not show up. They wanted the empty chair, right? The empty chair, right? And it did not look good for them from a PR perspective. This is lawmakers' opportunity to say, okay. it's not just about Facebook and Twitter. It's also about you. And there's, you know, it's, it's, again, getting back to, you know, fake news and whether your platform is being used to spread, you know, misinformation, hate, bullying. Um, there's also specific to Google, they want to get back into China. And they are considering a search engine that would be censored in order to make it over the, you know, the Chinese firewall, as, 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 as it's referred to. And so there's a lot of things that they want Google to answer for in D.C. 
in general, and I know it's hard to make generalizations like this because every company, probably every big tech company, has its own relationship with China. You mentioned Google, right? They've been dealing with uh, the government there, uh, privacy concerns, um, you know, free speech concerns for several years. But I am curious, big tech, when it comes to China, what kind of relationships do they tend to have? Well, it, it's you know, it, it, you're right. It's hard to generalize. What China has done is China has made it difficult for several of the companies, particularly the ones operating on the internet, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, really no very little presence there to speak. Google pulled out, right, um, because they had had it, you know, this was about eight years ago, had it with the censorship rules and regulations, and they they decided we're going to stop doing that. And so those companies have had a very diminished uh, presence there. A number of other companies have really been able to thrive and flourish. Microsoft, Cisco, uh, Apple, selling iPhones. Um, and it's been a very lucrative relationship for them. Right. And now, you know, so... You you, and you and now you see the possibility of companies like Apple not being able to you know to operate as freely there, and that causes a lot of concern. Tom Giles, executive editor for our global technology vertical, as we call it. Yes. TG, you are the best. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. It's been an interesting market environment, and our next guest has been getting uh, a bunch of emails from some of uh, clients' financial advisors. We're talking about Jeff Sott. He's Managing Director, Chief Investment Strategist at Raymond James, based in St. Petersburg, Florida, making his way to our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York. Um, The fade in the markets, hence the song. Uh, How do you make sense? I always do this to you because you've seen a lot of market cycles. I'm not trying to age you, but I do love people who've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly because stocks go up, stocks go down. How do you make sense, though, of 3% moves that we saw yesterday? That's kind of significant. Yeah, well, quite frankly, I didn't know. The, our models last week said the market ought to park for a while and not do much. And so Monday surprised me on the upside, and Tuesday surprised me on the downside. But I still think this whole thing was within the construct of a secular bull market, and they tend to last 14-plus years, and there's not many people left. In fact, Ron Barron told me that. Uh, there's not many people left that have seen a 49 to 66 or an 82 to 2,000 secular bull market. You still think that's where we're in? Absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. are, are there pullbacks? Yeah. The Jack Kennedy steel crisis in 62, the, where the steel companies raised prices and President Kennedy didn't like it and said, you got to put prices back down. The market didn't like it and lost 37% in two months, but it didn't stop the secular bull market. The crash in 87 didn't stop the secular bull market. It went on until 2000, and that's that's the way they typically run, 14-plus years. So, Jeff, as we've been trying to make sense of what's really driving this, especially the, the mad buying and the mad selling, the big swings, one of the things that inevitably comes up is – the machines are much more in control. You know, we saw a moment yesterday in the market right around noon where it felt like the algos kicked in. They hit some resistance level and we were off to the races, not in a good way. How much of that makes it different from some of the cycles or in some of the these periods that we've seen yeah, before? That's fair, Jason. I think uh, Byron Wien said, uh, I guess a couple of weeks ago, that 60 percent of the trading volume is now algo. Mm-hmm. Uh, driven and it looked to me like when you violated the uptrend and I'm not a technician I'm a basically a fundamental nor guy. am I my friend when so keep you going. broke the uptrend line at 2850 the 
algos were told quit buying the dips and sell the rallies and that's what it's felt like ever ever since then nevertheless the economy's in mid-cycle we're not in late cycle ed hyman just said that the other day and i've been saying it for a year the mid-cycle economy mid-cycle downturn was so severe and the recovery so muted that what you've done is elongate the mid-cycle and so earnings are still coming in better than people expect um but not as strong as we have seen well, I've been hearing I've been hearing the negative nabobs tell me for six quarters that we're at peak earnings. I don't I don't think so. You don't think so. What do you make about companies holding back though on capital expenditures? I actually think CapEx, if you look at Ed Hyman's charts, the CapEx is actually hooked up, not dramatically, but people are starting to because they can expense the equipment rather than depreciate it over a period of years, and there's a more favorable business administration in DC, and I I think that's caused an uptick in the CapEx cycle. And then when you see all the Wall Street firms, uh, so many this week, J.P. Morgan and others saying, well, wait, it's time to really put some more money in cash. Are you telling your clients, Jeff? I am not. We we had a trader sell signal on October 2nd. I wrote about it and said, if you've got speculative trading positions on, you ought to sell them. I didn't do anything with investment positions in, in retrospect. I wish I had in a couple cases. How could you just put that out there and then not? Because Raymond James is one of the few firms that will let you use the dreaded four-letter word, S-E-L-L. Okay. <laughs> but, I mean, you were you were negative at the, the beginning of October. Yes. Okay. On a trading basis. On a trading basis. Okay. You know, all of this is within the construct of a secular bull market that's got years left to run. Okay. All so, right. So about 30 seconds left. What does 19 look like? If you can sum it up in, in a word or a phrase or a sentence, uh, what sort of market is 19? It's going higher. Really? Is that succinct enough? That is. Well, wait a minute. What's driving it? What's driving it higher? (laughs) Earnings. You notice that I'm talking to a guy from the South, I'm dropping my G's. What's driving it? The S&P 500's up a percent right now. So that's higher. Like, how much higher? Is it it continues to be a volatile market in 2019? When people ask me how much it's going up, I I use the uh, 10.4% per year, which is what it's done since 1926. There you go. That's a note of optimism here. He's an optimistic kind of guy. (laughs) (laughs) You tend to be. Jeff Sott, Managing Director and Chief Investment Strategist at Raymond James, normally down in St. Pete, but here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio today. talking a lot about the cannabis industry. We've had several CEOs here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio uh, talking about growth potential, the metrics, and so on. Uh, And we've been watching these stocks uh, really closely, including specifically this week, shares of one of the biggest Canadian pot companies, Afria Tank, this week, down nearly 43%. Stocks down on almost 70% this year. And this, and I'm not mincing words here, after a short seller said it was a, quote, black hole. That investor, short seller, is Gabriel Grego. He's managing partner at Quintessential Capital Management, as I mentioned, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Strong words. You short sellers tend not to mince words. But tell me your thinking, because you did do a presentation, kind of laid it out, and some of this has to do with some of the acquisitions that this company has made. Tell us why you think this company in particular is a black hole. Yes. Well, first of all, I would ask probably to all of your listeners, if they have some spare time, to either watch our presentation, which is right now posted 47 minutes on YouTube, or download from our website the the actual full report. Uh, We believe both of them are very understandable. Even to a layperson, you don't need an MBA in order to understand what is in there. 
we believe in the scientific method. So in other words, to present all of the evidence we have and then to try to come up with a coherent thesis. And the only way to do those well is to actually read. That's the first thing. But of course, it'd be great to share like, the fundamentals here. So what is happening? This is not um, an attack to the cannabis industry in general. We actually have quite a benign view on the industry. Valuation may be overvalued for the sector as a whole, but that is arbitrary and is subjective. Right. Um, what we did is about this company in particular, and we've seen some very, very worrying sign, or even to put it more bluntly, some overwhelming evidence coming from multiple directions that uh, something sinister may be going on. What are those multiple directions that have got you worried? Yeah, first of all, um, the whole uh, suspicious idea came with the fact that uh, the company has been very acquisitive, like other cannabis companies, um, especially in emerging markets. And in particular, they made a recent acquisition where they paid uh, several hundred million dollars um, Canadian dollars for an acquisition in Latin America. They acquired three companies, one in Colombia, one in Argentina, and one in Jamaica. And the, the first thing I did was I compared the valuations that were paid for these assets uh, by the ultimate buyer that was a FRIA. And in some cases, some of them came out like uh, paying a multiple of maybe one order of magnitude, so 10 times more or even more than competitors. They're paying up big time for it. I'm sorry? They paid up a lot for Yes, it. they are paying for this acquisition yeah. a lot more money than their competitors are paying. And by a lot, I say, in some cases, more than 10 times. So some of what uh, you're talking about, Gabriel, are you know sort of bad business decisions, things that should give investors pause. You know, Other things do feel like they have some regulatory, maybe even you know, could lead to some investigations. Have you, have you heard anything from regulators or, or governments about you know, what they think the, the company is doing or not doing? Well, we do our job and the regulators do their job, and I'm sure they do it well. And if they decide that it's warranted to intervene, they will intervene. Uh, but I, over, I think that with the amount of information that we put out, any rational thinking person would be quickly convinced that uh, they were probably correct. And what has the company said to you? Well, the company reacted in the usual way uh, that a company reacts to an activist short seller, uh, especially when he's correct. In other words, they denied all the allegations and they threatened a lawsuit without pretty much answering any of the core allegations. What are these core allegations? I would like to tell them to you. First of all, there are many allegations. It's a 50-page you know, report, but the main ones are this. These three um, acquisitions were made not directly, but through three shell companies. Um, one of them was called MMJ Colombia, MMJ International, and Marigold Acquisitions. These three shell companies changed name uh, almost immediately before the acquisition took place. The former name was actually the name of the private investment vehicle of a person that uh, is a de facto insider of both companies, Mr. Andy Francesco. So he called them Delavaco. They used to be called Delavaco. Something Delavaco is his own company. Right. And this looks to us like an attempt to basically minimize or, or, or make it less transparent that, that is involved. That's one problem. Second problem is in one of the acquisitions in Argentina, acquisition of this company called ABP, that to us it looked little more than a pharmacy, and we shot photographs or videos of all this. When the, um, when the company was acquired, the company declared that the revenue is $11 million. The revenue that we found out, according to both uh, sources that we use, Dun & Bradstreet, as well as one of the workers of this company, is less than half a million dollars. In other words, they seem to have grossly exaggerated the revenue, if our sources are correct. Number two, they um, touted a purchase order with a prestigious Argentine hospital called Garahan, 
saying that uh, they got this prestigious large order for uh, an important study, and we understood from direct talks with the hospital themselves and with their press releases that this was not a purchase order, this was a donation. So where are regulators? Because I, I do, I always get nervous about situations, companies, corporate entities, organizations where mm-hmm. the structure starts to make it pretty hazy yes. and you can't kind of find the direct lines. And I also do wonder when you've got uh, a company working in a lot of different parts of the world, who ultimately has the oversight and is looking into it? What are you hearing in terms of the regulatory front that anybody's looking into this? Well, I mean, here I'm just speculating. Um, yeah. Again, it's not my job to, to tell regulators what to do. They take their own decision, and I'm sure they, do it, they take them well. Um, this company is a Canadian company. Um, it trades in Canada, but right. recently started trading on the New York Stock Exchange. So in my opinion, it falls under the jurisdiction of both the Canadian and the U.S. authorities. And I expect them, given the amount of noise that we did, to take a look at this. But it wouldn't be the first time an investor reaches out, I think, to a lawmaker or a regulator to say, you know, have you guys taken a, a closer look at this? And I'm curious if you've done that, you know, kind of reached out at this point. We never comment on whether we speak with regulators or not. Mm-hmm. We believe in their work. Uh, we're sure they do it well. And if they decide action is warranted, you'll probably be hearing from them. And we should point out, you know, the company, as you say, you know, has denied this. They have uh, their response was that this was a, quote, malicious and self-serving attempt to profit by manipulating Afria's stock price at the expense of Afria's shareholders. We are awaiting, of course, a promised report that they have said they will uh, answer all of these allegations. Uh, in the meantime, you think the stock could go to zero? Well, first of all, we have this very serious allegation. If their allegations are correct, the whole system of companies, which is not only a free, by the way, it has this uh, sister company, the press def- defined it as sister company, I think it's an appropriate name, called Scythian, now it's called Sol. Um, Just have about 20 seconds left. Yeah, basically, um, we believe that, first of all, there is this problematic, uh, problematic allegation. Number two, the important thing is that the industry itself looks like a commodity, and there is a lot of overcapacity, which will probably have an impact on the stock price. And the two things together could be lethal. Well, we hope we can check back with you as we follow, um, certainly, the history of the industry and this particular name, Afria. Gabriel Grego, managing partner at Quintessential Capital Management, based in uh, New York? In New York, but in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Oh, Carol, you love it when we head south. We've got a southern people. I start dropping my G's and saying y'all. Mark Travis joins us. He is president of Intrepid Capital Funds. He's down in Jacksonville, Florida, overseeing about $900 million, uh, the firm is. We're going to talk about uh, his macro view of the markets, get into some names. I know you love to do that, uh, Carol. But before we do, Mark, I have to say, sorry about those dogs. They came close. (laughs) Came very close. You know, Jason, I don't even want to count what I spent following the Georgia Bulldogs with my daughter. God bless her. She's the only person in America who could convince me to go not once but twice to watch the Nick Saban show at Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. Oh, but, no. Uh, and and it, it ended exactly it, the same way both times. I'm very sorry to hear that. But uh, at, le- at least when they come to your town, they do all right. All right. So let's get into the markets. Obviously, markets closed today. But what do you make of it? Yeah, thank God. Right. I mean, what do you make of what's going on, this volatility we're seeing? Well, Jason, my contention is the Fed has been raising rates, and it's it's sucking money into the U.S. dollar, which has 
um, made our markets probably hold up better than most of what's around the globe. If you go to WI, go on your handy Bloomberg and kind of scroll, scroll around the globe, you know, Germany's off 18%, Great Britain's 15 uh, Nikkei's not so much, maybe uh, five, Chinese markets 20-plus. So we've we've sucked in money into the dollar because our rates have risen um, up and through probably end of Halloween. We just had a very small sliver of shares that were up, and we pretty much knocked the legs out of those here uh, since then. So, um, you know, I, I think it's it's reminiscent of other periods that I'm old enough to actually recall, believe it or not. Huh. And um, so I just think it's going to be interesting. Um, and, interesting uh, good, interesting bad. Well, I mean, Carol, I think the opportunity is when people are, are scared. You know, I, I like to say that price is not always indicative of value. Mm. And when they get uh, disconnected is when there's opportunity. You know, the reason Sam Zell is so famous in the real estate market, he, he was willing to step in after the RTC bankruptcies right. in the late, you know, late 80s. So I'm not really in, anticipating any apocalyptic uh, share price changes, but yeah. I think people need to fight their their human urges to flee on days like we had yesterday. Well, in the meantime, I mean, investors still put money to work. We know that. And maybe they're getting a better deal than they were at the beginning of the week, you know, following that rally. Uh, a name that you like, and that has been beaten up a bit, is Dollar Tree. And I feel like, Jason, and I have a lot of folks who come on and like these uh, discount store chains, discount retailers, big time dollar stores. Uh, it's down about 20% this year. Tell me what it is, Mark, that draws you to this name specifically. Well, Jason mentioned going down south, and you know, to go along with cornbread, you have to have a family dollar store in almost any small town. <laughs> but all kidding aside, I think that the the, the Dollar Tree has been really a very successful uh, chain. Um, they've kept their price point at a dollar. Yeah. Uh, it's probably Carol where you might have gone for Halloween decorations or mm-hmm. Thanksgiving decorations, if there's even one close to you in Manhattan. But you know, so that management's done a great job. There's roughly 7,000 of those, but they've had a somewhat, at this point, ill-fated merger with Family Dollar um, three years ago. So there's 8,000 of those. Um, the price points are a little different. There are a little more consumables inside a Family Dollar than a Dollar Tree brand. Um, we think that they're going to spend probably a billion five in CapEx and re- rehab say, a hundred stores or better uh, pretty soon here with Family Dollar, and hopefully that'll change it. But what what we think this part of the retail market does, though, is it, 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 the best we can tell, cannot be Amazon, so to speak. Um, You know, the the dollar price point, the average ticket of, say, eight to $12, it just doesn't make sense to press your Amazon Prime button and have it delivered to you. So... We, we think that helps kind of fend off the problems that other retailers have had. Right. Uh, we, we also think that when we do, uh, you know, kind of a discounted free cash flow, we get a, a significantly higher share price than where they trade. I haven't looked uh, today, but yeah. last I looked there in the, early, the low 80s. Um, so we think they're, you know, north of 100. Um, 
All right, so let, let's talk a little uh, MSG. That's, that's a name close to home uh, for people uh, here in, in Manhattan. You can't invest in the Knicks, nor should you. Um, but uh, what about the, the real estate, the arenas, the, the media properties here? Well, I, th- I think and despite probably the maybe deserved um, you know, reputation the younger Mr. Dolan has um, for being a – you know, having a, at the moment a crummy NBA f- franchise, I do think he's got some good supervision at the board level um, in terms of people, uh, you know, helping him hopefully create value. Yeah. Um, and so uh, this is an unusual one in that it's more of a sum of the parts. Our right. experience has been with Forbes valuations, they're, they're really discounted where trades go off. I mean, if you look at what Ballmer paid for the Clippers, it's hard to make sense of it on a valuation basis, but yeah. there's enough, you know, billionaires like David Tepper who swooped down and bought the Panthers that somebody might want a marquee franchise. We think the Knicks is the third best franchise in terms of value behind, I believe, the Cowboys and um, I'm trying to think. My, my probably the Patriots, Chiefs. right? Yeah. Uh, no. The no. Patriots. I think I think I'll say it's the Yankees actually. Oh, of course, the Yankees. Sorry. Oh God. Yeah, uh, I so just said Patriots for our producer Yankees Paul Brennan. There you go. Yeah. All right, Mark Travis, you're a good man, president of Intrepid Capital Funds, joining us on the phone uh, from Jacksonville, Florida. He'll be watching the Sugar Bowl, I believe. The uh, Sugar Bowl later on. <laughs> he will indeed. Go dogs. Madison Square Garden. Take care. Mark, be well. You know, I was just taking a look at the stock. I mean, it's up uh, about 24%. Uh, had a pretty good earnings uh, report. And so, yeah, we'll see what happens. I mean, it is interesting. I mean, his point is is well taken. You know, one of the things we didn't talk about yesterday was David Bonderman, the latest private equity guy, to get into the sports ownership business. You know, I was I had a chance to catch up with uh, John uh, Connaughton. We'll hear from him later on from Bain. He's an owner of the Celtics. You know, we were talking a little bit off air about all these private equity guys. They've gone into buying these teams because the value Valuations keep going up, and for exactly the reason that Mark said, because they are worth more than the sum of the parts. It's I amazing. Love it. I love it. All right, everybody, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on this Wednesday. Carol Masser, along with uh, Jason Kelly, right here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.